So um, I want to transition our time to the Word of God, and we started this last week, continuing this week in this new series called False or True, but Discerning Error from Falsehood, in which we are very much in the throes of in our culture. And so there's some things that we can glean from this series, especially tools that we can go out and apply to kind of defend ourselves, if you will, or prepare ourselves to be engaged in the truth and not deceived, if you will, by falsehood. So um, make a note of that as we go through these series, some things that you can do, that I can do, that we can better ourselves to be more discerning towards the truth. And one of the ways we looked at last week was I gave you a true and false test And so if you didn't listen to last week or weren't here, it'd be good to go online and just get um, caught up, if you will, uh, and and that would help you in this series. And in that way, I shared two things that are kind of foundational, if you will, for understanding this whole series and understanding how you're going to look and respond to it. And these are those two things. One, God is for God. He's all about himself. He's passionate for his glory. And you will struggle if you don't understand that the way the Bible reads, the way that who God is. You'll struggle if you want to think life is about you, which many of us in our culture do. And so you might be sitting there, and newsflash for you today is life is not about you. And in fact, it's so much easier when you know that and when you operate that way. When you drive around, people cut you off. That's not really about me. When you come home and you're just demanding this and your time and space, your recreation, this, 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 it's just not about you. So you have all these opportunities to serve and love other people. But that's the first one. God is for God. He's passionate about his own glory. He is the author of everything. He is the central figure in the Bible. It's all about him. Everything revolves around him and his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, God has designed the world to work a certain way. So there are these laws, precepts, commandments, truths in the Bible that if you don't understand that this is designed for your good, for my good, for our benefit in this world to live as he created us, you're going to struggle. And so those two truths you need to hold on to as we continue in this series. So with that, I'm going to read from 2 Peter. I know the bulletin says 1 Peter, but we'll be in 2 Peter. Reading from 2 Peter, uh, one of the pastoral epistles here, Peter is writing these things, counseling the church in verses 16 through 21 in chapter 1. And this is what he says, For we, disciples, him and the others, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, First of all, and these are the verses that I want you to latch on, 20 and 21. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. With that, I would invite you to pray 
and I'm going to pray for us collectively, but I would invite you to pray that God, because this is what we're going to talk about, and this is what the text says, that the Holy Spirit does illuminate our minds and hearts towards his word this morning. And pray, if in many ways, as I am, revolved around me, that God would just shed that away for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for its truth. We thank you that you are glorious, that you alone are the majestic glory that we just read about. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would speak to our hearts, that we would apply truth. Father, convict us if we need conviction. Teach us if we need teaching. Encourage us if we need encouragement. Father, whatever it is that you do the work, um, you do a supernatural work when we open up your word. And through sinful men like myself, you deliver your truth into hearts, my heart included. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that, that we'd be more equipped to know your truth and discern what is false, that you'd be glorified. Strip us of our selfishness and self-centeredness, that we might make our life more about your glory and find our joy in Christ. We pray these things in his name and all God's people said. I want to tell you a story about a young man named Arthur. Arthur is a young man who is new to the Bible, like maybe some of you find yourself, and he is reading the Bible about a month in, and Arthur is finding himself, to be quite honest, a little disappointed with the Bible. You see, it's not this, this, this tool that he thought it was in the way that he's thinking in his own mind. It's not this perfect way of life for him and ordering things. In fact, as he reads it, he's finding that he doesn't even feel particularly moral. He's not finding it for himself as he's reading a roadmap. And he's heard it before that people have said the Bible is God's love letter. And in his mind, he just doesn't feel that way. It's not a very good one because as he's reading it, there's things that he just doesn't understand. There's some short books and some long books. There's some prophecy in there. There's some genealogies that are long. He opens the book and some things he just doesn't understand. There's a lot of complexities in the Bible but he's continuing to read it. And so one day he's in the coffee shop and he overhears two Christian men debating these two theological terms, which he's just confused about. And the two terms were exegesis and eisegesis. And he is like, I do not understand what those two things are. So as we would do, he goes and he buys a theological dictionary on Amazon. Alexa, order me. And he orders it and it shows up. And so he looks up these two words and what he finds is that he had misspelled them in his head. And they're actually these two words, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis meaning to draw meaning out of. This process by which the text itself has original meaning, and you are to draw that out in its meaning of context. And eisegesis, on the contrary, is reading meaning into. Often a derogatory term when we reference Bible reading, that people take and impose a message into the text that wasn't intended. And so you're either reading or drawing meaning out of the Bible text, or you're reading meaning into the text. And so after Arthur had learned these things, what he didn't notice before, his eyes were starting to open up to. As he walked around, he noticed that scripture was everywhere. It was in advertising. 
It was on people's t-shirts. It was in music that he would listen to. It was on Facebook posts. People even casually dropped verses in their conversation. And he saw this everywhere. He started to notice there was bits and pieces of God's word showing up everywhere. In fact, his relative even sent him a Christmas card with their picture on the front and they're around the Christmas tree with all these gifts. And inside it is this message. This Christmas... Make merry and celebrate by sending each other gifts. Revelation 11. Curious, Arthur hadn't gotten to Revelation 11 yet, but he wanted to, and so he flipped ahead a thousand pages, and he looked it up, and it says this. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Arthur was disappointed in this. That has nothing to do with Christmas. In fact, it was quite scary, these two beasts here portrayed, this verse that they had put in their Christmas card. And he was disappointed. It was that moment that Arthur came up with his own theological term called this, verse jacking. And that is the process. That is the idea of taking sections out of the Bible, out of their context, and using them to support your well-wished, desired meaning. Well, Arthur started carrying around this little journal as he would go, and he would hear bits of Scripture, and he would jot them down, and he would study them. And what he learned was the well-wished meaning kind of disappeared into the background. But what he had started to know was that as he dove deeper into the Bible, into the treasure of God's Word, and knew the context of these passages, that the truth of God and its intended meaning rised up in his heart, and he began to know the Scriptures and the meaning of the Bible. If last week was about making sure what you believe is actually in the Bible, that's why we took that test, the absolute truth, the Word of God, then this week is about how to rightly use and understand the Bible. You see, we need to be people of God who read the Bible in context. That is hugely important for us, that we open up the scriptures and we understand it and read it in context. After all, Paul charges Timothy, and for that matter, since it's in the scriptures, charges all of us to rightly handle the word of God. That's what 2 Timothy 2.15 says. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God of truth. If there is a right way to handle the word of truth, there is definitely a wrong way. And that's what Arthur learned was happening with many people. They were taking verses and they were verse jacking and they were reading them out of context. And so just as Paul is counseling Timothy about false teaching and handling the word rightly, so Peter here in our text is doing a very similar thing and he is defending the truth and that it, and its origin that it comes only from God. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through the text that I read, and I want to understand the context, but I want you to hone in on verses 20 and 21, as I said. In verse 16, Peter starts in defending the faith, saying, this is not some myth. We were eyewitnesses to Jesus. We saw these things firsthand. Him and the other disciples were witnesses to the power that Jesus displayed. It was real. It was true. He bore witness. He saw the majesty and beauty and power as they encountered him. And Peter is testifying to the truth, the truth that John 1 talks about. The word is truth, manifest, the logos, living word, 
word became flesh, and he's testifying to it, saying, I've seen it for myself. Jesus, majesty, glory, power, it was all there, and I've seen it. And in verse 17 and 18, then he uses two examples from Jesus' earthly life, referencing his baptism and his transfiguration. He said, these were two events, two things that I witnessed that are very clearly recorded in the scriptures that had other witnesses, as if to say, I saw the heavens open up when Jesus was baptized and the Father was pleased on his Son and I saw him transfigured on the mountain in Matthew 17 and this glorious thing happened, mind-blowing, supernatural thing that happened and we saw the power and the majesty, glory on display. This encounter was so powerful that in fact Jesus told him, if you go read the account in Matthew 17, not to tell anybody until after his resurrection from the dead. And on both occasions, God opened up the heavens and spoke about Jesus as his beloved son. So he was tying him to himself in full divinity, and yet Jesus was fully human. And just a simple, simple reading of both of these accounts gives us a glimpse into the supernatural, divine Jesus. But Peter continues in verse 19, as if that were not enough. And we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter says, we have the word of God, the words of the living God. These two experiences, Peter witnesses truth, but all prophecy pointed to those things, that one day a savior from Israel would come and redeem, that one day God would redeem his people through Jesus. And all prophecies pointed to those things. And one day God would restore and we'd have hope. And so Peter witnesses this baptism. He witnesses the transfiguration. Something is happening here supernaturally that one day we will be like him in his resurrection. And he understands these, but we got the word of God. And it's a light, a lamp shining in dark place of human hearts. The word of God illuminates. Jesus, as the word was a light, the word of God does illuminate our lives. It gives us understanding. Jesus being the full revelation of God, the word being fully truth. And Peter says, you'd be wise to pay attention to that. You would be really wise. But here's what I want you to see in verse 20. Peter is clearly giving the origin here of the prophetic word, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's interpretation. In other words, it's not from man. It's from God. The actual word doesn't originate from man or out of its being. It originates from God. It is very word of God. I said that last week. It's not so much from God as it is of God. And he continues in verse 21. So what is it? Gives us insight to how it, we read the Bible today. He says it this way, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried, this is the key, along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy isn't produced by man's will. Man spoke for God and from God. And here's the key, the Holy Spirit translated and wrote that message in man's heart. And so I don't get to come to the Bible and make up my own interpretation. I don't get to come to the Bible from my own heart and gain understanding. And there's four key truths that help us here that we need to know. First is this, the author of the scriptures is God. And if this be true, then it's perfect and without error. People have died for that in the church age. 
the inerrancy of the scriptures. It's because God and his attributes and his character is perfect. And if this is the revelation from him, it is perfect and true. There's nothing wrong with it. Just because you don't like it doesn't make it wrong. It's perfect. The second thing is this. Men penned it to paper, but it was the Holy Spirit that wrote it through them. It was not written out of human will. So Peter, even as a disciple of Jesus who witnessed these things, who was in the inner circle of the disciples, who saw great and miraculous things happen, he was a witness to that, to testify about it. He did not one day, like many of authors of Scripture, sit down and just decide to write out of his own sinful flesh what he thought. It was the Spirit of God that put words in him to the pen, to the paper. He didn't just sit down and say, these are what I think. This was the word of God by the Spirit through him because he, Peter, and the authors of the Bible were sinful men. There was no one sinless except for Jesus Christ himself. And so the Spirit took him over, if you will, with revelation. Perfect, articulate transmission of human words to us. The third thing is this. If Scripture originates from God, it has an intended meaning from God. And it is only interpreted rightly by God. In other words, only the Holy Spirit can illuminate meaning and give context. Only God can make sense of the Bible for you. The Holy Spirit is the one who will illuminate understanding, which is the fourth one. You cannot interpret Scripture on your own or read meaning into something based on your own desire and will. You can't hijack or verse jack God's intended meaning to suit your well wishes. You can't do that. Now, we do that as a church and as a culture sometimes, but you can't do that because it has original meaning and context. And pastors and teachers and congregants are doing this all the time, and you're probably doing it. In preaching, it's called proof texting. That's why the Bible says there would be come along teachers that like tickle the ears. You want to hear them. You're engaged with them. You listen to them because they're appealing. And topical preachers will often preach on topics, and then they'll pull in Bible verses to support their desired meaning. And this verse jacking thing happens, and instead of letting the Bible speak for itself and doing all the hard work of prayer and meditation to discover true context and therefore communicate right meaning and application, that's not done. And so Peter continues on, if you read ahead into verse 2 of chapter 2, with more words about it. And he says in verse 2, 2, that, the re- that this comes from their own sensuality. And the result of that is blasphemy, and sensuality is feeling. So false teaching develops when feelings, like, I think that it should be this way. I talked about opinions last week, and why wouldn't we? Verse jacking happens because it's born of our own will and desire. Because if we're being honest, it feels better... It feels just better to understand the scriptures the way we want to understand them. And like the Truth Project video, we form our own worldview and we will argue opinions based on what we think it should be. So if we come across a scripture that someone says, you shouldn't think like that because God's word says this, we say, well, it fits better into my lifestyle if I look at this this way. Because I want to believe these things about God, I want to believe these things, and that makes me happy and it makes me feel good, so that's just what I'm going to go with. And the result is blasphemy. When in reality, if we pay attention to the proverb that Dan read earlier, it is the Lord who gives wisdom. And from his mouth alone come knowledge and understanding. So unless you get it from this book, it is not wise, it is not knowledge, and it is just foolishness. 
That's what it says there. And so to demonstrate what I'm talking about, like real demonstration here, what I want to do is I want to just unpack four, just four, there's like a lot of verses in the Bible, but these are probably the most commonly verse-jacked Bible verses in the Bible. These are the four that you'll recognize some of them immediately, probably the number one one, which we'll do. You'll see it and go, yeah, I've heard that because this is the moneymaker in Christian bookstores across the land. You ready? The first one is this, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That is a good deal. And why would you not want that on a frame on your mantle? Because it's wonderful. And so what I want to do is I want to take each of these and I want to give you the out of context, the eisegesis, and then I want to give you the in context. The out of context on this one, many people list this verse as a personal favorite, perhaps because it offers this guarantee that life will be okay in the end. And the general direction we're heading is one of prosperity. That's great. The problem is when our faith is based on that understanding, that idea, when something bad happens to us that collides with that makeup of how we understood this verse, and we end up asking, how could God do this? He's a promise breaker. He said that it would be good for me when life happens and unfolds and it's not looking so good right now, we come up against a problem that God is not who he says he is. How could he break a promise? But in context, the exegesis of this verse, this word here is given not to an individual, but to a people, the exiles in Babylon. Last time I checked, none of us are that. God is promising that he has not given up on his people, Israel, and that even though things look hopeless, they still have a future. And if you read backwards, the context of verses 1 to 3, explain this letter to those exiles makes it abundantly clear. When we pull the verse out, though, on its own, it becomes this promise of personal earthly prosperity that God simply just doesn't make. And I'm not saying this verse doesn't speak to us as a culture, but it was written for a time and a culture of people that we have to understand its context and meaning. The principle of God being for us and giving us a bright future is absolutely true in Christ. I don't want you to misunderstand that. But this verse isn't our best source for that news. And it also seems to suggest that if we read this in that way, that we'll walk through life unscathed and things will pretty much be okay, which we know for most believers is not what really happens. When you follow Jesus fully the way you ought to follow Jesus, life is often not so rosy. It comes with pain and trials and confusion, and it comes with hardship. In fact, the scriptures say in the New Testament that we're going to be pressed, but not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. That is the life of a believer. And so this verse in that context will not line up with reality of a disciple of Jesus. That's the first one. The second one is this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or some translations say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That is the one on the muscle guy out of the gym, isn't it? Or the athlete. And I'm not saying it's bad to have that verse printed on a t-shirt. Don't misunderstand that. This is where you're like, reeling back in your chair. I have that shirt. He just publicly rebuked me. That's not what I'm after. Out of context, Paul is not telling the church 
at Philippi that they can go and do whatever they want, or they can do all the things they want to do, or because they have some athletic giftings, they can go just be a superstar athlete, or because they're five foot six and they're not Muggsy Bogues, they can dunk a basketball. And if you're five foot six, you can't, unless you have extreme plyometric workout in your legs. But it doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean if you just wear the shirt and believe it and read this, I can do anything. I can go lift 500 pounds. I can just do whatever I want. Athletes quote this verse all the time. I'm able to just set my mind to these things because God gives me strength to do them. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That's out of context. In context, he's saying that we can do anything through Christ, or a better way to look at it is in Christ in the context that we can do anything according to the will of Jesus Christ because he will give us the strength to accomplish what he puts in our path. And most often that is suffering. And that's the context in which this is written. Paul is writing about sufferings. Before this verse, Paul says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying, I've learned to just what it is to be brought real low, to suffer. I've had plenty at times, I've learned that too. But what I've learned is this, that in my sufferings, Christ gives me enough strength to accomplish what he's bringing me through. This has no superstar athlete written on it. This, in fact, has the one faithful Christian who is enduring suffering and trials and temptation, and yet Christ is making it possible for them to stand. Paul was likely writing this in prison, cold, hungry, alone, and yet he learned to be content because he was in Christ. That's the meaning in the context. The third one is this, Matthew 18, 20. For where there are two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, interestingly enough, I grew up in a Bible preaching, teaching, very fundamental, conservative church as a kid, and this verse was on the scripture, and I always looked at it like, ah, it's like... We learned out of context that this verse means where two or three people are gathered, you can do church. So, like, this is the verse that everybody uses when no one shows up for their church meeting. Well, there's two or three of us, we can gather, or we can have, and, and that's how it's used, out of context. The reason this is wrong is because if you're born again, and God has deposited the Holy Spirit, you only need one, because Jesus is already with you. So just by just knowing that theologically, that Jesus is with me, that the Spirit is in me, that I am the temple of God, I don't need even one or two more people to be with me to be near Jesus. And so it kind of debunks that right away. In context, this verse is actually written in Matthew 18 in the context of church discipline or relational sin and disagreements. We always tell people in the church, if you have a conflict with a brother— Go to Matthew 18 and follow its instructions. If your brother sins against you, then go to him and try to resolve it. If that doesn't work out, bring a witness with you and try to resolve it. If that doesn't work out, it's the third and final step that the church, it comes before the church and there is discipline there. That's the context of that verse. And so it's relational. The whole context about sin and disputes, not about fellowship and gathering. It's saying, if we, together with those witnesses, arrive at restoration, Jesus is in agreement with that because he's all things restorative. He wants the body of Christ not to be divided, but to be restored and fully healed, even in our sin and fractures and disagreements. 
People also would take that verse in another gospel and say that, that where two or three are gathered, you can ask whatever you want and God just gives it to you. Well, God, we know, may or may not answer your prayer in the way that you want. It's not a hard, fast rule by just getting two or three people together. You can pray, and then Jesus is there. He agrees and says, yeah, you can get the nice house and boat and stuff. I'm with you. Because do you know why? <laughs> because I have plans for hope and a future for you, to prosper you, and you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. <laughs> Number four, and this one might surprise you. And I want you to latch on to the phrase here. This is in 1 John 4.16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That phrase, God is love, is absolutely true. However, people verse jack that and apply it to their own life in the way they want to think about God. And so out of context, this is one of a fraction of the manifold attributes of God. It's just one of them. It's like saying to me, Craig is a cousin. I am a cousin, but I'm also a husband, a brother, a father, a son, an uncle, a nephew. I'm all those other things. You cannot elevate one attribute of God to the exclusion of his other attributes. Many say that a loving God would not, they form a theology like this, they they, a loving God would not send someone to hell because he's loving. God is love. And their God of love is created in their own imagination of a nice God that, that really you can do whatever you want because God loves you. That's out of context. In context, God is love, but he has other character attributes that go together. Love and discipline, for instance. First and foremost, God is holy. He cannot even look upon sin. And that is why he turned away from Jesus, his son, at the cross. He can't even look at it, this God of love. That's why we need Jesus. When I discipline and I do my kids, it is born out of love. And honestly, as a parent, if I don't discipline them, I don't love them because I'm operating from those rules, if you will. Not that I am for me, that God is for God, but there is a world that he has created a certain way and they need to live by that. And so when they go play in the street and they can get harmed, I discipline them for that because I love them. In fact, the author of Hebrews says it this way, that God disciplines everyone he loves, his own children. And so he uses his other character attribute. So there are some things that will seem at times in life that God is unloving. It's not true. But you can't just say God is love and he just loves me so much he lets me do whatever I want. You can't elevate that one attribute. And those are just four examples. Just four examples of many verses that have been verse-jacked, lifted from their context and given desired meanings. And they're good for bookstores and business, I guess. That's what they are. And when we misunderstand them, we do a, a horrible thing. And there's plenty of other verses. In fact, so many that I would say it this way. In reading just one verse, you can always easily take it out of context. Listen to this. Though the Bible, in its original form, is inerrant, our interpretation of it is not. Though the Bible, in its original form, is inerrant, without error, our interpretation is not. So we can make a lot of mistakes if we don't do this carefully. I can make any section of Scripture, putting into my context, my Eisegesis imply about anything I want. I can make the Bible seem to support modern polygamy if I want. Slavery, hatred, 
homophobia, violence against women, even crusades against people in their face. I can make the Bible do that if I read meaning into and impose my meaning in it. And it's not hypothetical. This isn't just like, I could do that. This is happening. The Bible has become a tool for people, for us to push selfish agendas that don't represent the heart of God. And I realize that most of us are not trying to start a war over the scriptures. Although some of you that are buying those really big Bibles that you want to beat people over the head with, maybe you are. But most of us, many of us, in fact, are just this. We're just lazy. We're just lazy with doing the work required to interpret and apply scripture. Whether you've had informal training on scriptural interpretations or not, you're all, we're all, myself included, susceptible to misunderstanding and misrepresenting a passage of scripture which is why you need to read anything in the Bible aiming at this, the big picture, the grand narrative. When you and I read the scriptures, we need to read it. That lens was talked about through the big picture, the bigger grand narrative of the whole Bible. And what is the Bible about? It's about Jesus. It's about the glory of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's about God's glory. It's exactly what Peter was talking about as he testifies to this in the letter we read. He said, this is a manifest glory here, beautiful and majestic. This was Jesus. We witnessed it. He is the hero, the author of the scriptures, present at creation. He's eternal. He's all these things. The Bible is about him. Life is about him, not about us. He's central to the Bible. God's glory is the theme. And the grand narrative is God glorifying himself in the sending of his son to redeem creation. And he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't. He's merciful. We sang about it. He didn't have to do this. It was undeserved grace. And therefore, he gets all the credit. He is the true hero of the story. He is the creator and therefore knows what is most right and perfect for us. It's all God, all the time when you open the scriptures. It's not about you. And you and I will run to the scriptures and say, I need help. I want to use this for me. Instead of running to the scriptures and saying, God, I want to know your heart. I want to know you. This is about you, not me. Because remember, God is for God. And he has designed the world to work a certain way. So in that way, aiming at those two truths, you need to read every single verse through that lens. And it would help us to look at scripture like a puzzle. It would help us in this way to be put, as we put it together, to completely understand how all the pieces properly fit. We need to understand how the picture looks on the outside of the box. You know that if you've ever tried to do a puzzle. You don't have a shot in the world unless you see the picture on the outside, what you're aiming for. And so it is with the scriptures. You need to know what you're aiming at. You need to know the grand narrative of the Bible. And when you read a Bible verse, it's in the context of that. That's what I'm aiming for, the bigger picture. When we don't hold a clear view of the bigger picture, the danger is that we will be frustrated. And in our frustration, we will try to just leave the pieces individual and separate from the grand narrative. And when the pieces remain separate from all the others, they lack purpose for what they were created for. And they need to be joined by other pieces to create the image the creator had in mind when the puzzle was first made. And that's how we need to read scriptures. And so as I close, I just want to offer us these two things. And then four applications, two reasons why we do that and four ways that you and I can avoid being a verse jacker. The first two reasons, why do we do this as a people? The first one I referenced, it's just laziness. It's time. 
You and I do not take the time committed to read the Bible in the way that it needs to be read and sit down and we need to meditate and pray and it takes time to look at the whole context. It takes time to read the whole passage around that verse and we'll get to that in a second. It takes time to do the hard work of exegesis and understanding the scripture. We want to run to it. We want to find the answer. We want to point to it. We want to ask God for it and we want just for life to happen the way we want That's how we often read the scriptures, and sometimes we're just lazy. And so it's hard work over a long earthly life to know the heart of God. The second thing is it's really just a worship problem. Romans 1 tells us that it is unrighteousness that suppresses the truth. The wrath of God was revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by the unrighteousness our sick hearts suppress the truth. We're prone to that. Later it tells us the reason in Romans 1.25, The people will exchange the truth about God for a lie because we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You and I are so self-consumed that we want to serve ourselves and the created rather than God. And so that blinds us to truth, even when we open the Bible with what we think is a good heart. If it's selfishly intended, it's wrong. And only the cross can save us from ourselves in that. And if you think, and you're here today, and you're listening to me, and you think life was about you, you have a real problem, and that's what Jesus' call is to come and repent of. The life is not about you, that he wants you to surrender and follow him alone. And so the cross is there for you, and grace is there for you, undeserved. God doesn't have to do it, but he does it because he loves. So our application is just as we close these four ways that we can avoid being a verse jacker. The first one is this. And I just mentioned that you need to practice repentance in your own heart when you come to God's word. Can we just assume, because the Bible also says it, that your heart is completely deceitful, that your desires are completely fleshly, and that you're just not that great. And I looked in the mirror of you as I said that. I am not that great. And so when I come to the Bible, I need to practice repentance. God, I may be selfish when I come to you in this or read this for me. And we need to repent of that. We need to turn to God and say, God, I don't want to be selfish in this. Can you show me the scriptures? And that's why we recite that affirmation, no matter how painful it is to our souls. Not because we're pain-inducing here, but because we read the word of God and sometimes it hurts because it shows us things about ourselves that we need to change. So that's the first one. The second one is this. You always need to pray first before you read the Bible. You need to ask God for wisdom and trust the Holy Spirit. You need to come to God and you submit to him and you need to ask him to speak. That's why I do that before, we, before I preach. It's so important. Ask God. And if you don't do that, you need to start doing that when you read the Bible. Because if you don't do that, you're going to be after your own understanding and imposed message. You need to pray. That's the second one. The third one is this counsel. Never just read one verse alone. The Bible app, I have it on my phone. So I'm not saying one verse is bad. I'm just saying I like the button right below it that says read full chapter. I push it all the time because I need to know its context. So never just read a Bible verse alone. It will imply whatever you want it to in most cases. You need to read the context in which it is written. You need to understand what is God really saying. Sometimes that might be reading the chapter, the whole book, maybe the whole Bible. I don't know, but it'll take time. And the fourth one is this, continue to sharpen your mind. Continue to sharpen it against the Bible, against other Bible passages, against each other. Discuss it, confirm it, challenge, question everything. Wrestle with theological truths, debate them. 
over Christmas with my family, I referenced it last week, my brother and my dad and I got into quite a heated but not like unloving discussion over theological truth. And I'm still looking, the rest of the kids are like, scared. You're being really loud. Are you mad? No, we're just passionate. And what it did was it drove us deeper into the Bible. My brother sent me this really long, he was thinking about it. And he said, I went back to the scriptures and I had done the same in my office. I went back to the scriptures and we just couldn't arrive at our conclusion, but we were after not our own interpretation. We were after what God says. And so we debate those things, but it gave us a sharpening an understanding of the Bible better. It wasn't that we were arguing just because we were mean and unloving, we wanted to argue, but it was a passionate debate to get deeper into the glory of God, the central narrative of the Bible. Practice repentance. Pray before you read the Bible. Never read just a verse and continue to sharpen your mind. I am thankful for grace in my Bible reading. I am thankful for the word. And I know that I can only understand the word of God when we meet Jesus and he transforms our hearts. That's when, when he walked on the road to Emmaus, those two that left says, wasn't it our hearts were burning because he was speaking to us the word of God. And if you don't know this Jesus, you need to know him today. And if you don't understand the Bible, maybe it's because you don't know Jesus and you've never repented of your own sin and come to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the glorious and majestic God, that you've given us your word. And Father, we are asking that you would help us. Father, the invitation is from you and it's clear. And so I invite others towards it today. If, if there are those in this room who have never trusted Christ by faith, that they would do it now. Maybe they've never understood the Bible, but today they have a burning in their hearts. It is because the Holy Spirit is working in their life, illuminating a path of light to them. Father, open their eyes, take the blinders off their hearts so they may know you and follow Jesus fully. Father, we have been given Christ to save us from ourselves, from our sinfulness, from our selfishness, from our sensuality, the things that we want and feel. And Father, that is the punishment for that is your wrath, our unrighteousness, and it suppresses the truth. And so, Father, free us from those shackles in that way. That we would believe Jesus at his word, that it's only the truth, Jesus Christ, that sets us free. And so, Father, I'm asking that you would set us free. Set us free from our improper reading of the Bible, our imposed meaning on Bible texts and verses. Keep us wise. Keep us sharp in understanding. Keep us prayerful. Keep us repentant. Allow us to make the time necessary to read the Bible in its context. We're asking for your help. I'm asking for your help in that. And that we would see the glory and beauty of Christ and his majesty for all our days. And we would follow him faithfully. And in that, because of Jesus, we do have a hope and a future, a resurrection, a life eternal. And we praise you and we thank you. And we love you and pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, I want to leave you with this truth, a counsel for us about what the word is from Hebrews 4, verse 12, and how we should go forward. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than two, any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Go and read the Bible like that. Have a blessed day and go in peace.